Father in heaven, thank you that you are sovereign and that we are not, because that reminds us that you are the one in control. We thank you and pray that you'll bless us as we hear from this word. I thank you that you've been able to um, work through me to pull something together here and ultimately to be able to preach it today. So we pray for clarity and faithfulness on my part. We pray for your spirit's help to be challenged by this word. And we ask these things for your glory and our joy as we seek to continue to follow you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. What are you afraid of? What are you afraid of? This past week I was counselling an old friend uh, whose marriage was breaking down, as I mentioned, and he felt an inner sense of despair, of hopelessness and chaos. He was contemplating suicide. No matter how hard he tried to fix the situation, he couldn't do it. He felt like he was failing. That was a sobering moment, not only for me to hear that from him, but also to be sitting opposite of him and for me to be seeing a man who is living out what I think is my deepest fear as well, the profound fear of failure. I'm afraid, not just in the Asian sense of you should be getting straight A's, uh, but my fear is a fear of messing my life up, of making mistakes and losing it all. I'm afraid of letting people down, of having all these expectations on me that I can't meet. And I'm also afraid of something happening to my wife, Steph, or something happening to my children. I've been chatting to some of the parents in the first service uh, and parents of older kids realizing how difficult it can be to deal with, uh, to raise children in this world, to raise kids who will face bullying, who will be playing, uh, who, my girls, who will be playing mind games with the various girls, even in year one, uh, of the social media world that they'll have to navigate and the heaps of negative influences. So I'm actually quite fearful of how to bring up my world, in, how to bring up my kids in this world. What about you? What are you afraid of? We all have something or some things, and in some ways it's natural. Whether it's failure, a fear of failure, a fear of disapproval, a fear of shame. We're all scared of something. Sometimes we can't admit to it, so we have to bury it deep. But sooner or later, if we're honest, if we're honest, we'll recognize our fears And we'll recognize that our fears drive much of our search for security. We fear failure, so we work super hard. We fear disapproval, so we are people pleasers. We fear shame, so we do not confess. Now, it's not a bad thing to search for security in life. It's actually the ultimate goal of all of our lives. The question is where will we look for it? Now, the passage we have before us today is huge for a couple of reasons. First, because it is 11 chapters, and it's 11 chapters mostly of judgment and mostly about nations that we are completely unfamiliar with. Second, this is part one of two sermons that will mostly be about judgment. In chapters 13 to 23, the nations surrounding Judah are all being targeted for judgment. And in chapters 24 and 27, attention is then turned to universal judgment of the whole world, of all of mankind. Now, if you get a chance to read through these chapters, it'll be really good to have with you a map 
so that you know and to, so you're able to orient yourself as to who is being spoken to. Right? As Isaiah's, uh, um, see, Isaiah's words here in chapters 13, 24, uh, 23, they're related to Moab and Eden and Philistia, Syria, Ammon, Assyria, and Babylon, Babylon. But it is highly unlikely that these words spoken about Moab, Edom, or the Babylonians would have been heard by them. These words are actually for Judah to hear. It's for them to know what God plans to do with these nations, and in some ways to warn Judah to not put their trust in these nations. Remember, Judah was surrounded by these nations, and all of these nations surrounding them wanted to blow Judah off the map. And so there is a lot to be afraid of. To the north, they had Israel and Syria, an alliance against them. Their neighbors, Edom, Moab, and Philistines, weren't friendly either. And then you have the two big nations to the east who are vying for power, Assyria and Babylon. And into this political chaos, you have little Judah thrown into the middle, trying to survive. Now, a similar theme runs through chapters 13 to 23. And we're going to focus then on chapters 13 and 14 and the biggest nation which is addressed, Babylon. Babylon is a a symbol, a model for what the other nations are like. Babylon's primary sin is the sin of each and every other nation as well. And so understanding what God does with Babylon and why helps us understand why God is judging all the other nations as well. Now we open up point one in our outline and there's something actually a little bit odd going on. So far, Isaiah has focused attention on the big nation of the day, which is Assyria. Now this talk of Babylon would have been surprising. But if you go back to chapter 6 and chapter 8, there's actually hints already that Babylon is on the rise. And while Assyria is looming large, Isaiah knows that it will not last. Babylon is going to be the next superpower of the day. Empires come and empires fall, and they will keep coming and they will keep falling. And perhaps one of the main reasons why Babylon is mentioned now is not just the political stuff that's going to happen. The name Babylon is the name Babel and recalls in our minds the Tower of Babel and Genesis chapter 10. The Tower of Babel stood as a massive symbol of human pride, human independence, human autonomy, humanity's will to make a name for themselves. So our attention is drawn to chapter 13. Uh, So Isaiah's attention is now on Babylon, and and it's perfectly precise because they represent the worst of what all the other nations do as well, sinful pride. Uh, Our attention is drawn to chapter 13, and Isaiah calls on his readers to listen. The first thing we encounter is a noise. Have a look at chapter 13, verse 4. The sound of a tumult is on the mountains, as of a great multitude. The sound of an uproar of kingdoms, of nations gathering together. The Lord of hosts is mustering a host for battle. This is the roar of a massive army marching together for battle. Isaiah describes the sound of a tumult, an uproar. The footsteps of this army is deafening. An army belonging to God himself. And in verse 5, we read that this army comes from a distant land, from the ends of the heavens. This seems to be a very poetic way of describing a massive heavenly army being gathered together. God's heavenly army gathered to oppose Babylon, to oppose pride. Then in verse 6, they listen and they hear more terror. 
a wail, a screaming howl. The day of the Lord is near. The day of the Lord was understood to be the day that God would act decisively and finally, sometimes to save his people, sometimes to judge them. And the emphasis here in the context is clearly on judgment, terrifying judgment. Listen to the words of terror in verse 7. Han- Ooh, a sound. Hands will be feeble. Every human heart will melt. Verse 8, they will be dismayed. Pangs and agony will seize them. They will be in anguish. They will look aghast at one another. God's anger and judgment is utterly terrifying. On July 8th, 1741, in Enfield, Connecticut, Jonathan Edwards preached his most famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Cheerful title, and you could probably guess the tone of the sermon from that title. Edwards uh, preached this sermon to a church and a town which was largely cold to the gospel. And as he preached, the response was extraordinary. Here is a quote from the sermon. It will give you an idea of how it went down. The bow of God's wrath is bent, and the arrow made ready on the string, and justice bends the arrow at your heart, and strains the bow, and it is nothing but the mere pleasure of God, and that of an angry God, without any promise or obligation at all, that keeps the arrow one moment from being made drunk with your blood. Edwards started his sermon, but he could not finish it. The impact of his sermon was immediate. People listened and shrieked and cried out. Weeping became so loud with constant yelling out, What must I do to be saved? So much so, so much yelling, so much weeping and crying that Edwards had to stop his sermon. Many came to a saving knowledge of Jesus that day. Now, when you hear a story like that, how does that make you feel? Did that quote make you feel uncomfortable? The arrow is one moment away from being made drunk with your blood. I wonder if you feel uncomfortable because we have forgotten or we have diminished that God is indeed truly terrifying. I don't mean to neglect or ignore or sideline His grace and His mercy and love, but I want to raise this question. Have we also diminished and reduced and minimized His righteous anger and terrifying wrath against sin? Listen and hear that God is here. His army has arrived. And it is terrifying. And then see 
verse 9. Verse 9 begins with, Behold, look, turn, see. See how God is laying waste sinners and the land in his wrath and fierce anger. In verse 17, we are told again, Behold, to see how God will destroy the Babylonians by the Medes. The Medes, also known as the Persians, uh, would have been surprising given that in Isaiah's time they were actually in alliance together, and yet it will be friends who turn into enemies. Then in verse 19, we see Babylon's destruction is pictured like Sodom and Gomorrah's destruction. The towns in Genesis 19, which God destroyed swiftly, totally, destruction rained down on them and they were wiped off the map. If Babylon is representative of human pride and sin in general and across history, then Babylon's defeat is the story of all nations that defy God. How the mighty have fallen and how the powerful have been brought down. Harry Houdini, one of the greatest illusionists and stunt performers of all time, he made a name for himself escaping from handcuffs. Uh, The most famous moment was when he went to his local police station and said, hey, can you guys lock me up? I'm going to escape. And as a joke, the police locked him up in their secure prison. And five minutes later, he walked out into their offices and said, have you got any other uh, cells more uh, secure? He made a name for himself escaping from handcuffs, chains, ropes slung from skyscrapers, straitjackets underwater. He even managed to escape being buried alive a couple of times. One of his other tricks that he was famous for was for taking punches to the stomach. A few days before October 31st, uh, 1926, a university student challenged him to that trick, take a few punches from me. Houdini consented, but before he was ready, the student, a boxer, punched Houdini a few times in the stomach. Houdini was mortally wounded, but despite the pain, he continued to perform for the next few nights, refusing to seek medical treatment, fainting on his very last night in the middle of an act, but constantly telling people that he felt strong enough that he would recover. A few days later, he died. Medical opinion is fairly unanimous that if Houdini had sought medical help earlier, he would have survived. So it actually wasn't the punch, so much the punch that killed him. It was his ego, his pride. Pride goes before the fall. Pride is that the sin is the sin at the heart of Babylon as well. You can see it in chapter 14, verses 12 to 14. It's the sin that brings their downfall. Have a look at chapter, 12, uh, chapter 14, verse 12. How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, Son of dawn, how you are cut down to the ground, who you, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend it to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. Have a look at that again. Verse 12, they have fallen from the heights of even heaven itself, cut down just like they used to cut down the other nations. Verse 13, pride spoke to their hearts. The pride that comes out in our words and actions is first spoken in the heart. Pride lifts your heart above God. Pride is the cheerleader, cheering the heart on in a profound rebellion against God. 
It says to you, I'm good enough to ascend into heaven. I'm good enough to be above God and set my throne higher than his. Pride says you are king and ruler above God. Verse 14, I will make myself like the most high God. I will make myself like God. Can you hear the echo of Genesis 3 and the words of the serpent to Adam and Eve? You will be like God. God hates it. When we make ourselves to be God, then we are ignoring who God is and treating him like trash. Have you ever experienced that moment when you're being treated like trash, when someone makes you feel worthless, a failure? You know that feeling of shame that you've done something wrong and you haven't lived up to expectations? It's horrible. And yet, that's how we treat God. When in our pride we lift ourselves up, we are ignoring God and treating Him like trash. We are saying no to Him, even though He is the only one who can truly give us what we need and desire. It must profoundly frustrate Him when we choose to find satisfaction, not in Him, but in ourselves. And that's what we do when we are prideful. And so for this pride, God must judge and punish. He cannot Let the abuse of his goodness go on forever. And so we read in verse 16 that the nation of Babylon will be so smashed that the people looking on will be in awe and wonder that this was the same nation that was before. It will shock onlookers to see how far they have fallen. God takes it a step further and he says in verses 20 to 21 of chapter 14 that their future generations will be swept away as well. No one will remember them. Babylon was famous for its hanging gardens, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Their cities were beautiful, and so the opposite of a beautiful human-built city is a desert or a swamp, and that's exactly what their land will turn into by the judgment of God in verses 22 and 23. Babylon's defeat is the story of all nations that defy God. These chapters are big on judgment and the destruction of Babylon. Her pride has lifted her heart up over and against God, but God will not let her stand. He will tear it all down. A few years ago, I received a poorly photocopied flyer in the mail. It's from some anonymous Christian group or Christian church. I don't remember what it said exactly, but I do remember there was one quote from the Bible in the King James Version about God's coming judgment. And with this verse about judgment was a single one-liner at the bottom of the flyer. Repent now before it's too late. And that's it. And that's all there was to this flyer. I remember thinking as I was reading this how badly this reflects on Christians. And I remember wishing that there was some grace, some hope for the reader to go and explore. So in our passage, is there any hope? There is a little glimmer. As you read through chapters 13 and 23, you keep seeing these glimmers of hope, and they seem to come out of nowhere. But our glimmer of hope today is chapter 14, verse 1. Read with me again, verse 1. For the Lord will have compassion on Jacob, and will again choose Israel, and will set them in their own land, and sojourners will join them, and will attach themselves to the house of Jacob. Now, way back in chapter 2... 
God planned and purposed that Jerusalem would be the center of the world's attention and that hope would be found there. God has planned that all the nations would pour into that city to hear God's word, worship God, and live his way. But if Babylon wins, then the purposes of God will not be fulfilled. If Jerusalem is destroyed, then the purposes of God will not be fulfilled. See, here in chapter 14, verse 1, we have a glimmer of hope. God chooses his people, shows them compassion, settles them into their own land and brings sojourners, foreigners and aliens among them. See, the hope of God's people is that the judge of the nations will be gracious and compassionate. That the judge of the nations would remember his word to them and keep his promises. See, hope could not be found in alliances with other nations. In fact, that's the main point, I think, of chapters 13 to 23. Each nation surrounding Judah picked off, targeted by God. The messages of their destruction and judgment unlikely to be heard by these nations. The message of their destruction then meant for Judah. Judah was meant to see God picking off these nations, reminding Judah that their only hope was to find refuge in the judge himself. When things were going to get tough, they needed to trust God. They were not to trust themselves. See, there is no refuge from the judge, but there is hope that he will act in your favor. Over the coming weeks, we will see how God will do just that. Through Isaiah, we'll see how God intends to satisfy that hope. And so how do we read then these judgment passages today as Christians? First, I think we need to be honest and say that judgment is a hard thing for us to swallow. I think it's partly because it sounds so harsh, partly because maybe we think that people are generally okay and don't deserve it. And maybe because we don't spend enough time thinking about how much God hates sin. So we need to be reminded then that Jesus spoke more about hell than he did speak about heaven. And Jesus describes the reality of eternal judgment and hell more vividly than anyone else in the Bible. Second, we need to remember constantly and always be reminded that Jesus gives us hope in the face of judgment because he took the judgment upon himself. If Babylon is a symbol for human rebellion against God, then on the cross, Jesus took on the role of Babylon. He He became sin for us. He became the enemy of God. But his resurrection means that God and his people have the ultimate victory. No human system or power will ever stand up against God. In fact, because of Jesus' resurrection, all of these systems and powers will be brought down. We have now come to a kingdom that will not be shaken, to an empire that will last forever. As we read in Revelation 18, Babylon, the symbol of all human governments and powers that rebel against God, will be brought down Fallen, fallen is Babylon, and fallen is everyone who has followed after her. And so that's why the angel cries out to the people in Babylon, come out of her. 
do not be like the rest of this world because that world will fall come out of her be distinctively different in Isaiah, as we've been reading of the judgment that Babylon and other nations deserve for their pride and arrogance and sin, at the cross we see judgment fall on the humble, the meek, and the sinless. And it's because it's fallen on Jesus, it no longer falls on us. Number three, Isaiah was expecting a great day of the Lord, a day when God would act decisively to either save or judge his people. The day of the Lord is still to come. And it's either a day of salvation or a day of judgment. It is a day of salvation for those who have believed and received Jesus' sacrificial death for them. It is a day of salvation for those who believe that Jesus has taken the judgment they deserve. But it is a day of judgment for those who continue to reject Jesus. Which one, uh, which one it be will be depends on how we engage with Jesus now and what he has done for us. So what does this mean then for us today? That's, I think, how we read this, these judgment passages, but what does it mean for us today? Uh, let me start with the impossible application. Sometimes when we listen to sermons, there are some things that we must clearly not do as a response to hearing God's Word. It's the impossible application. The impossible application for today and for this passage about God's impending judgment is to ignore it. The day of the Lord is coming, so how are you going to prepare for it? Let me tell you that the best and only way to prepare for it is to trust in Jesus and live in response to that trust. I mean, is that something that you want to do? Is that something that is on your heart as well at this very moment? Then if it is, let me invite you to come and speak to me after the service. It is never too late to turn to Jesus and trust him. So do that today. Don't ignore God's coming judgment. If the impossible application is to ignore God's judgment, then the necessary application, what you must do as we walk away from this passage, is we must trust God. The final application this morning is a question of where our true allegiance lies. Are we truly following Jesus as king? Or are we trusting in other things for our security? Specifically, are we trusting in our own abilities, our intelligence, our hard work, our wisdom? Are we trusting these things to save us and to pull us through? You know, in our Asian circles, whenever someone gets sick or sickness is beginning to go around, what do you normally see in Asian countries? You see people wearing face masks, right? A few decades, about a decade ago, I don't know if you remember, there was a massive global pandemic kind of epidemic, I don't know what the word is, but there was heaps of fear about something called swine flu. Remember that? Heaps of people were afraid of it. In the UK in particular, a bunch of people were selling out pharmacies and supermarkets and buying up those face masks. UK health, health experts then began to warn the public that buying a face mask could have the exact opposite effect that they were hoping for. See, instead of protecting them, it actually gave people a false sense of security. Uh, it potentially, for two reasons. First, it potentially provided a breeding ground for the virus because of the dampness of your breath in the mask. Right, The warm, damp breath 
would provide a breeding ground for the virus. And secondly, it actually caused a number of people to neglect probably the most important thing to avoid getting the flu, washing your hands. If you wanted to be safe, then there was actually little point in putting on a face mask. And that's Isaiah's point. It's his point here in these chapters, especially as he's highlighting the sin of Babylon. All our self-efforts are an expression of pride, and pride will be brought down. All of our self-efforts, as like putting on a face mask, gives us false security. Only God can guarantee true and ultimate security. So it's foolish to trust anyone else, and it's foolish to trust your own power and effort to save you. We all need to feel safe. We all need to feel secure. It's natural and it's right. If you don't feel safe and secure, then you'll end up in the horrible place of my friend who I mentioned at the start, in a place of chaos and hopelessness. Trusting God means looking to Him, especially in our fears. When we're anxious or worried, we look to Him for comfort and reassurance. We remind ourselves of what Jesus has done for us. We preach the gospel to ourselves and ask that to calm our hearts and give us reassurance that He has our well-being and future in His hands. Trusting God means trusting that He will keep His promises. Trusting God means living with, the conf- with confidence in Him. Now, trusting, of course, does not mean just sitting there and doing nothing, but it does mean that what motivates our effort will be our trust in God first, not our fears and not our worries. And trusting God will, not, will mean not looking to anyone or anything else to give us security and safety in this life, not our bank balance, not the approval of our family, not the marks that we are getting at uni, not even the approval of our work colleagues, and certainly not our ego or our pride. Let me pray. Our Father in heaven, we give you thanks for this passage and this stark reminder of the downfall of pride, a sin which is in every single one of our hearts, for we know that we have all, in one way or another, have spoken the words that we will ascend and high above you and make our throne above you and live like we are God. We have all done that. It is our pride that has shot, shot us there. So we pray, Father, that in your grace and mercy you will pull us down. You will help us to see that you hate pride and you will Make, uh, you will put an end to it. We thank you that in Jesus we are given grace and mercy. So help us live with Jesus as our security and our confidence. Help us to live with Jesus as our joy. And help us, Father, work out together in conversation and in prayer what that will look like in each of our lives. For we pray this for your glory at work in us and in Jesus' name. Amen.